0: Before we begin, a quick announcement. We will be taking a break for a couple of months over the summer and plan to return with new episodes in August of 2017. I've had the pleasure of spending time with seekers and creators of interesting places for the past six months and 24 episodes. Whether we've been focusing on foraging for wild foods, on exploring the world through wine, on creating a dark cabaret show, and so on, the people I've talked with have deepened my understanding and my curiosity, and I hope yours as well. So keep this podcast in your subscription list since it will fizz back to life in August. Okay, let's kick off today's episode. Welcome to This Must Be The Place, the show that reveals the unique physical, cultural, and emotional layers of places. As is the case with many places around the world, Seattle has a sector of the city where residents with international backgrounds tend to cluster. The obvious examples in the U.S. include the Chinatowns in San Francisco and New York City, the Italian market in Philadelphia, though that place has become much more than an Italian hub by now, and the Mexican community in East Los Angeles. In Seattle... We have what is known as the International District, often referred to as the ID. This district is home to three significant neighborhoods, Chinatown, Japantown, and Little Saigon. Joining me today to discuss the past, present, and future of the International District is Ron Chu. Ron is a lifelong Seattle resident with a long history of socially conscious journalism, involvement in several labor and social justice organizations, and he was the Executive Director of the Wing Luke Museum of the Asian-Pacific American Experience. He currently runs CHU Communications, a community history and resource development consulting firm, and is the Foundation Director for International Community Health Services, a vital health clinic in the ID. He describes himself as an oral historian and a storyteller. Ron, welcome, and thank you for spending some time to chat about the International District today.
1: My pleasure being here, Eric.
0: So, you know, as I did my background research on you, it struck me how many different roles you've had throughout the decades, from journalism to activism to working at chop suey restaurants. Can you share with us how your life experiences shaped who you are and what motivated you to be such a vital force in the history of the International District?
1: I think, Eric, that like most folks... You usually don't have a sense of where you're heading when you're very young, but if you have an opportunity to play with your imagination and pursue your natural interest, they ultimately take you in the direction and to the places that you naturally belong. I'm the child of immigrants. As you mentioned, I'm a lifelong Seattleite. My grandfather came here to Seattle in 1911, so about 100 years uh, packed in there. So I have deep roots here. My parents, even though they too were immigrants, pretty much allowed me um, the freedom to pursue whatever I chose to. They encouraged me to obviously get a job that would provide enough money for me to support myself. But beyond that, you know, I had the opportunity to kind of range and Follow my natural instincts, which took me in the direction of, as you mentioned, storytelling. Has always been a theme in my life. Connections to community and to Chinatown International District have always been sort of a lure um, and a strain that continued throughout my life. So <clears throat> I've done a lot of stuff, um, but I suppose most folks by their sixties has. Yeah, I've worked in many arenas, uh, all the way from bussing dishes at a Chinese restaurant through my teen years uh, and up through college to working as a journalist to doing oral histories, working in a museum, now working in healthcare. So it's been a very satisfying and I think rich life, uh, in part because of this strong sense of place, which I've always had, that's anchored me both here and then to some roots uh, in China. And then just uh, nice opportunities that have opened up again, if you follow the path of pursuing your natural interests.
0: Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have been described, and actually you refer to yourself just now as an oral historian and a storyteller, but can you unpack what that means a bit more? In what context do you become a storyteller, and how is that tied to to community activism?
1: I think I got this interest in stories uh, mostly in my early years from my mother, who was a great storyteller. She was born in China worked in the sewing factories in Pioneer Square um, all of her life during the... Uh, 1960s and 70s, up through the early 80s, during a time when Seattle had quite a number of these uh, sewing factories. And so uh, growing up, I didn't see much of her during the day when she came home. And then on the weekends, she would uh, share stories of what she did in a sewing factory. Many of them were kind of bittersweet uh, because they were hard conditions um, in the factories. Uh, the hours and the type of labor and the danger. But then she also shared stories of China as well. And so I grew up with those stories and was just fascinated. And it stoked my curiosity just about my own past uh, and then the people around me and the community I grew up in, which consisted of a lot of what I call aunts and uncles, who were really neighborhood neighbors and co-workers of my parents. My father also worked in a restaurant called the Hong Kong Cafe, uh, which uh, many native Seattleites will remember. There have been a number of uh, iterations of Hong Kong restaurant and cafe, but the one that operated in the 1950s up through the early 80s was the the place to go in Chinatown. So I grew up among many of the uh, waiters that my father worked with. I myself bust dishes, and I was fascinated by their stories as well. So uh, when I talk about being a storyteller, in some ways I'm talking about us being listeners and absorbing information that roots you to an understanding of who you are and the place in which you operate Later, as I grew up, my natural inclination was I was interested in writing, I think in part because I struggled with language when I was younger, growing up in a non-English speaking home. You know, I had difficulties in school. As I began to master English a little better, particularly in high school and college, I was a late bloomer. There was a sense of power in that, and again, that further stoked my curiosity and uh, so I wanted to become a journalist. That was my passion and career in college. So I became a reporter, worked for a newspaper called The International Examiner, which was developing in the 1970s around the time that they built the kingdom. And the newspaper was starting to capture the stories of residents and and old-timers uh, who lived in the neighborhood. And so then I worked at the newspaper as editor for a chunk of um, decade and more uh, gathering stories. Uh, So there again, I had the opportunity to, you know, function as, I guess, a storyteller Mm -hmm. reporter of some kind. Ultimately, when I entered the museum profession, I discovered this term oral histories. And at the museum, we did exhibits in which we interviewed folks and put those at the center of the exhibitions and started reframing exhibitions not as devices for displaying objects, but as places where you could tell stories and infusing uh, sound installations and people's stories really at the heart of the work that we were doing. I discovered later, Eric, that uh, as I began more established museum profession, you know the word the term oral history, really referred more to a, a scholarly kind of pursuit, which is a little different from what I mm. had been trained in doing and what I was interested in. So I did some presentations at oral history conferences, in which which were fairly thinly attended. And I think my notion of oral histories was much, I would say, more democratic than the notion of Interviewing a famous person mm-hmm. or politician or leader uh, type who was retired and looking back on a career's worth of work, I saw oral history as being much more dynamic and about mm-hmm. being or- ordinary people's stories.
0: What strikes me when you're when you're talking about that is the distinction between, and it's a, it's the first instinct that people have, making a distinction between the journalistic impulse, which is the collection of facts in order to tell a story, right? They use the word story, but it's a different kind of story than what you're talking about. The oral historian is infusing narrative detail, aesthetic details, emotional layers. So there's still a factual base to what is being told, but there's an additional layer of emotional impact that hopefully motivates people into the right movement. It reminds me of, I think it's called the New Journalism Movement of the late 20th century. Where so-called facts were presented in a aestheticized environment in order to create more more awareness and action as a result. So I'm thinking about about that dynamic.
1: Yeah, and I think again, I, I, emerging from the journalism field, you know, there's a natural instinct to not be so stodgy about your work. You know, it's not a, a pre-prepared kind of session, one-on-one session where you know every factual detail needs to be preserved, frozen as is, but oral history as something that's a dynamic conversation. And oftentimes, and I've done this in my museum work, where you may do oral history and you're not sitting in a soundproof room with some kind of uh, taping device and documenting things in this kind of sterile kind of environment, but you may be doing oral history on the fly Mm -hmm. like a journalist does. You may be asking somebody about their opinion about something. You may actually be interviewing a younger person um, who has valid thoughts about things. They don't have to have lived 70 years uh, to have something of, of value or somebody who may be as my mother or father were a garment worker or a waiter who has something valuable to tell that's as important as somebody who may be a captain of industry that you feel the need to somehow document mhm so let's
0: use a little of that uh, oral history background and dive into the international district a bit more under what conditions did it form into a recognizable location where international so to speak residents congregated was it an organic accumulation over time or was it forced by social and political actions how did the id emerge in seattle
1: well i think with many of these ethnic enclaves that exist um, particularly in a lot of these um, port cities like seattle you know you have uh, folks because of discrimination because of lack of opportunities really congregating near an arrival point and finding work close by in seattle you had a china town which um, began as early and even before the city formed as a city. Chinese laborers recruited from China to come here, driven often, as my grandfather was, by very poor conditions in China, starvation, war, famine, those kinds of things. And in Seattle, you had a Chinatown that was closer to the waterfront uh, near Pioneer Square, Um, that emerged in the 1860s, and again, even a little bit earlier than that, eventually grew, migrated up closer to where the current international district is located today. The character of that neighborhood shifted and morphed as the population changed. So, I mean, it was a Chinatown, but, you know, as Japanese Americans started coming in the 1890s, it sort of took on a Japanese American flavor. So it became Nihonmachi. As the Chinese began diminishing in numbers because of the exclusion law, it really was more, I would say, a Japantown. As Japanese Americans began being targeted uh, by discriminatory legislation, the evacuation, incarceration, other groups uh, Filipino-Americans came, worked in the salmon canning industry, lived in the hotels. Later waves of uh, African-Americans also came uh, up here seeking jobs in Seattle during the wartime. Uh, Later Southeast Asian groups coming in the 1970s and 80s. So in terms of a precise time frame for when this became the International District, I'm probably not a skilled enough historian to know Mm. when that ultimately emerged, but there was some juncture at which the mayor of Seattle back in the nineteen late 1940s or 50s, I believe it was, declared the area an international settlement or community. So that's when the f- term first emerged. I became aware of the term international district uh, really more um, growing up, uh, high school, college, when a movement of young folks um, who were student activists um, began demonstrating against construction of the kingdom uh, back in the early 1970s, and then they reclaimed that term, international district, to present a political front, which they felt uh, provided a, a more accurate description of of who all were the constituents uh, living in the area that would be impacted by the kingdom. And so um, the International Examiner, in the newspaper, which I um, was editor of for a chunk of time, was, the name was born out of some acknowledgement it was the International District. So in other words, it wasn't an international paper, it was actually an International District newspaper, and that's how the term emerged.
0: And what are some of the key events in history that have shaped that? You mentioned, of course, in World War II, the the forced extraction of Japanese and Japanese-Americans from the area. But what are some of those key landmark events that have had a a deep impact in in the psyche of the district, if you will?
1: Well, reaching back a little further, I mentioned that the Chinatown area used to be located closer to the waterfront, kind of closer to uh, 2nd and Washington Street. There used to be a thriving uh, Chinatown there. When the city built the Second Avenue Extension, which I think was back in the 1920s, and sort of rerouted the streets and the traffic, most of that Chinatown community was deconstructed, and much of the construction started beginning to emerge along South King Street, where we currently have the International District. And so that public development was, in some ways, One of the factors that impacted the development of the International District, you know, there were some uh, tide flats that existed where the International District uh, is today. The regrade of King Street, Jackson Street, parts of Seattle, you know, the filling in of land allowed an opportunity for the International District to emerge in these new places. The incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II obviously then uprooted a huge portion of the population and then changed profoundly the character of the neighborhood construction of the kingdom brought a kind of development that impacted the international district both in positive ways as well as negative ways the traffic congestion pollution other kinds of developments that emerged to service the the stadium Didn't necessarily benefit the area, but it brought the activists, um, my generation, into the picture to advocate for um, social services, bilingual services, community protections. Uh, The area is now a special review district under city protection. So that also... um, had a major impact, the Kingdom era. And then now we're in the two-stadium era, mm-hmm. is how i describe it, with both the Mariner Stadium and uh, the Seahawks Stadium. And then profound gentrification development pressures as Seattle emerges into the Amazon boom, uh, high-tech era where every piece of property throughout the city is mm-hmm. of great value.
0: Yeah, and I wanted to ask you about some of the the international district's current cultural or political pressures it faces now. And yeah, there has been a lot of attention being paid to proposed urban development in the district itself and how it might alter the fabric of that community. Do you think there is a danger that the international district might either lose some of its identity or have it diluted in some way? Or is it being made more generic by development? Or is it a double-edged sword in which there is a little danger of that, but at the same time, it needs to be propelled forward by these forces?
1: Well, I think it is, as you described, uh, Eric, a little bit of a double-edged sword, as it is in every neighborhood throughout uh, the city of Seattle. You know, we have the opportunity to generate some energy and investment dollars and community action in this tumultuous time where everybody, again, is looking for space to develop, bases to purchase, opportunities to grow, because in that kind of environment, people become I think uh, more reflective about the things they value, the places that have meaning because of whatever nostalgic value, historic value, begin to become evident to folks, and so they begin to begin to um, cry out for protections and begin to call for public dollars to help restore deteriorated structures, buildings, and so forth. So I think you see that, a new generation mirroring kind of what happened when I was much younger during the Kingdom era. Uh, Young folks, uh, fresh from college, young activists, saying, well, hey, wait a second, before you build that 14-story hotel in the middle of this place that I remember used to be such-and-such, Let's look at uh, other opportunities to do something else. So, so we'll see. It's a little bit of an arms race, uh, mm-hmm. is is how I would describe it, between uh, developers and community activists who both want to plan the next phase of what Seattle and the International District will look like.
0: Yeah, I wonder, I mean, you're probably closer to the population than I am, but a a typical conversation that happens, or at least in my mind, when we're walking through the district, there might be areas that are old, that are Depending on your point of view, some people might look at an area that is slightly ramshackle or decrepit even and associate with it some kind of historical charm to it. People do that, right? If something is old, it's a little worn down, it has a certain charm. And I often wonder, is that a an exotic cessation, if you will, <laughs> of that? And if a developer comes in and turns that area into something that's closer to a 21st century model that we're all familiar with, are we losing something vital when we do that or are we over romanticizing the ramshackle older thing there's always that tension in my mind when i think of yeah. these these issues
1: yeah and i would say eric that you know there's no right or wrong there's no firm answer that is definitive when that question begins to loom i always like to look at these situations as situations where you have to balance uh, various interests you know often if you simply linger too long on the romanticized vision of what a place once was you know you become frozen in time and irrelevant and ironically as i get older as i've emerged in my 60s another aging baby boomer you know there's that danger that tendency to just hang on to the past in a way that doesn't help promote something that's vital and and sustainable so so i try to not fall into that trap on the other hand you know as a museum person as a historian as a storyteller you can't frame your future without somehow acknowledging and providing a place for that past to emerge because it provides you some emotional connection to who you are and why you're where you are and so i love opportunities for um historic Readaptation of spaces, uh, transforming spaces from dead spaces into Mm. new spaces. There are some opportunities or times actually where a structure no longer has a purpose and you just got to get rid of it and maybe put a place marker and maybe do some oral histories through Chu Communications or some firm like that. uh, And then just document and have that there for people to remember and acknowledge and, and to be able to search out. So so we're in that phase, having to make some choices about what to do with our future. Uh, wh- one thing, one analogy I'll make, uh, when I was doing the Wing Luke Museum Capital campaign, I, I was at the museum for 17 years, and the last five years were involved in uh, taking a uh, workman's hotel and converting that into a new museum. I struggled with that issue. Um, there were some folks who felt that, well, the building is—you know—it was an old workman's hotel. It's, you know, that that time has passed. So let's just tear it up and make it a some other new use, or maybe even tear it down. You know, I, I couldn't accept that as the best use. At the same time, there were some preservationists said, well, all those little apartment um rooms that the bachelor men lived in those need to be preserved i couldn't buy that either because you couldn't really create for us a museum with you know mm-hmm. hundreds of little cubicles we needed space that um, was functional for the next generation and for a museum so so uh, Again, we had to reach a balance, you know, preserving the place, but then looking towards the future and creating a template for um, functionality for the future. I think that's how we make these choices ultimately for all these places.
0: So I want to shift gears a little bit, not so much actually, and explore what makes the international district unique. What are some of the nooks and crannies in the ID that really strike a chord with you in particular? It might be little-known stores, small pockets of delight in the middle of a street experience. What comes to mind when when you think of nooks and crannies that are quite something?
1: Oh, boy, that's a tough one to answer. You know, when you hit your 60s, um, you know, there are many nooks and crannies, not just in Chinatown or National District, but throughout the city, i think especially of the places where the bachelor men used to congregate because of the exclusion laws um there were many many um men who lived there and worked there and spent their entire lives there without really the benefit of families and so i think of places that um where the people used to live and peoples Faces emerge in front of me. The, uh, many of the old men they used to interview and talk to on a daily basis, uh, growing up, uh, and then later as an adult working at the International Examiner and at the Wing Luke Museum. Yeah, many, many stories. I, I think of the faces and um, the smells and and the people, but I it'd be hard. I'd be hard pressed to actually identify which mm-hmm. of these kind of emerges most Mm -hmm. um, uh, dominantly. How
0: about a different way of putting it? How does the Seattle International District differ from other major concentrations of international residents, such as those in Vancouver, San Francisco, New York City? Is there something that makes it quite different from those?
1: I think just the term, international district, Mm. and how we've chosen to describe it really captures a little bit of the way in which it's unique you know, it's the one area in the continental United States where all the different ethnic groups came together and built a neighborhood in bits and pieces through different eras. And so, you know, the level of um, multi-ethnic collaboration, cohabitation that the area boosts is kind of special. And so it gives it both its name and its uh, unique character.
0: Is there really a geographic distinctions between the Chinese population, Japanese population, Little Saigon? Are there actual divisions geographically in the international district, or is it melding?
1: Well, it depends on who you talk to. Uh, You know, I've read uh, some descriptions of the history of particular streets and businesses uh, throughout the um, life of the neighborhood from the early 1900s on up to present day. And, you know, some of these superficial descriptions sometimes are misleading. So, for example, um, King Street, which is considered the traditional Chinatown core. Well, you know, it wasn't always Chinese and it wasn't always Chinatown. In fact, many of the Chinese elders I talked to who are no longer around mentioned, well, you know, it was mostly a Japantown, even up through World War II and beyond, because... Uh, there weren't that many Chinese because of the Ch- Chinese Exclusion Act. So, you know, the groceries, the you know, business people, the residents, a lot of them were Japanese Americans. Uh, along Weller Street, another Chinese elder told me, well, you know, there were a lot of African Americans that lived there. They had businesses. I said, oh, really? He said, yeah, but nobody remembers. I said, oh, that was interesting. That would have been a nice side project mm. uh, to have done. I would say... Um, Maybe it's always been an international district, and we haven't really fully acknowledged that. I know there's been a divide always within the Chinese American community, of which I'm part. Um, many folks who fiercely s- said, Well, you got to hang on to the term Chinatown because, you know, what, what's this term, international district, that, you know, is trying to wipe out our ethnic identity? And, you know, my response to that is, Well, I think we need to have a broad view of things. I, I use the term Chinatown, but I also use the term International District. And I use the term Nihonmachi. I use the term uh, Manila Town or Little Saigon. And, you know, I, I tend to not get hung up on those terms, but just to acknowledge that we have people of all ethnic backgrounds. And by the way, there used to be a huge Italian-American community in the International District, Native mm. American community. You know, those are all part of the neighborhood we need to embrace and through gathering their stories and you know, affirming what they contributed to the building of the neighborhood, I think we then have an accurate description of what the place actually was.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's pull focus out of Seattle a little bit and tackle a more philosophical question. What are the pros and the cons associated with these types of concentrated populations? You know, a common narrative is that these types of neighborhoods are vital to great cities since they provide exposure to different cultures and worldviews. But let me play devil's advocate a little bit. Is there also a danger of a certain kind of isolationism, if you will, where folks in those neighborhoods are not exposed to a broader set of cultural possibilities that they they spend a lot of their lives in that neighborhood? Is it a, a bubble of sorts as well, or is that an unfair potential description?
1: In the earlier years, Eric, these neighborhoods were, really were urban ghettos, and largely because they... Um, were created by outside pressures, you know, discrimination, anti-miscegenation laws, um, alien land laws, uh, restricted covenants. So it was really driven by the society which existed, which was clearly a lot more intolerant. Although you wonder these days, with the reemergence of some of uh, the political dialogue, whether we're Um, Re-emerging into another um, iteration of that era. Mm. But, you know, I'm old enough to have remembered a period where we didn't have people of color in certain neighborhoods, where all of us were concentrated in the central area, uh, the International District and Beacon Hill. Um, where you go over the east side if you ever went there. Not that I ever did, um, but there was nobody you knew there. Or even North Seattle, mm-hmm. where there were very few, if any, people of color. So, you know, that era was not a happy time in terms of people having type of opportunity to explore and uh, socialize and interna- interact with other folks and learn. We're in a little different era now. I work in the International District at International Community Health Services, which is a community clinic, uh, serving mostly immigrants and refugees. Most of them do have the opportunity now to purchase property in other places if they can afford it. Uh, they, they do have an opportunity for their kids to get an education. I think the struggle now is more uh, on the issue of, so what does this international district become? Because if you want Chinese food, you don't have to fight traffic to go down to the ID, Mm. you can go to a mini mall somewhere and have convenient parking and have some perfectly good uh, Chinese food. So uh, how does this community continue to be vibrant? How does it redefine itself beyond being restaurants and ethnic shops? Uh, That's kind of an open question that we're now trying to explore and see how that emerges. Mm
0: -hmm. That's the the arms race, as you called it, between developers and what the community wants is of of particular importance. What are you working on, or what have you been working on recently, and what will the future bring for you? Any emerging issues that you need to tackle or interesting projects you have in
1: mind? At uh, International Community Health Services, I'm very busy as uh, director of the foundation in simply raising money to support our community clinics. We've emerged in a time where, um, because of what's happening on a federal level, the support for the community clinic system is is under attack. And so, very concentrated on making sure that we continue to have a social safety net for um, uh, those of us in our community who don't have the resources to provide for their families' medical needs. Beyond that, uh, uh, by coincidence, I'm working on a memoir. Um, which is both a family story as well as a story of uh, growing up in the pre-Seattle boom era as part of the baby boomer generation that came of age in the civil rights era of the 60s and 70s. And in that uh, process, I'm trying to remember that project actually began, Eric, about a year after the murder of Donnie Chin, a medic in the International District. He was gunned down, essentially in a crossfire between two rival gangs. That uh, murder affected me profoundly because it reminded me of you know, the world in which Donnie and I grew up in, and many of the folks we grew up in are no longer around. And so I wanted to document Um, Seattle as a place, Chinatown International District as a place, um, while those memories could still be recaptured and framed and provided to the next generation. So I'm working on a book, a Mm -hmm. memoir, um, which um, is a fun process. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I'm continuing to do some other kinds of oral history documentation projects, uh, both locally and then um, in other places as well.
0: So tell us a little bit, I mentioned at the top of the show that you run CHU Communications. You're also a foundation director of the clinic. Tell us a little bit about both CHU Communications, where can people go online to learn more about it, or also the, the clinic, how can people learn more about it and support it if they want to?
1: Well, the clinic, International Community Health Services, is a network of seven, we have seven different sites. It was born in... The early 1970s, along with many of the other uh, community clinic systems um, during that era where affordable health care services to the poor began to become a rallying cry for many um, community activists. So many community clinics were literally born in that same era. ICHS was once a free um, Asian community health clinic. That, again, has grown and emerged. We now have 29,000 regular patients, seven service sites. Um, if folks are interested in contributing money, I'm happy to take it. Um, and so we do have a website that you can find, um, ichs.com. Chew Communications, I also have a website. And when I have time, I work with my associates and on documenting community oral histories through videography, through web-based content, through print publications, through a whole host of means. And so, um, yeah, very busy era, very yeah. busy time still for me.
0: And what we will do is, is add links to to those locations with the article that accompanies this podcast. And I just want to take a moment, as I did during our last episode, I'd like to take a moment to express my gratitude to uh, Yu Pai, the head of the Seattle Obscura Society. She suggested that I spend some time with Ron Chu to help me uncover the physical, cultural, and emotional layers within the International District. And we sure did that today. So, Ron, many thanks for spending some time with us and making it clear why the International District is a Seattle and national treasure.
1: Great. Thank you. It's been fun, Eric.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening. A reminder that we will be taking a two-month break and we'll be back in August of 2017. I'd like to thank a few people who have supported this first season of the podcast. Erica Long and Cole Rulane at the Magic Lantern Podcast, an insightful, idiosyncratic, and delightful look at specific films. Blair Lorenzo at the website thefoxandthecity.com Samuel Capasa architect, musician, and artist in Leeds, England. Yu Pai, who is the head of the Pacific Northwest Obscura Society, a local chapter of atlasobscura.com. And Peter Barnes and Joanna Rothstein at Clatter and Din, the recording studio I use just south of downtown Seattle. And of course, thanks to you who have listened to one or more episodes these past six months. Don't forget to share, like, or leave a review about this podcast since all this activity helps us get noticed and grow. I would also love it if you visited thismustbetheplace.io where more podcasts, videos, and written content live. On the site, you will find a companion page for this episode where you can learn more about Ron Chu, explore the international district a bit more, and access links allowing for a deeper dive with some of the themes we covered. As always, you can subscribe and receive the latest greatest episode on your favorite app and device. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, take your pick. Until the next time, this must be the place.